Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from an individualist perspective. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and if you run over to my blog at don'tletitgo.com, you'll see the title of today's show, Playing Django with Obamacare. Now, that's just one of the stories that we're going to talk about, but it just happened that this morning when I heard the news about the Republicans planning to try to repeal the individual mandate, just the individual mandate. They're just going to get rid of the individual mandate from Obamacare. They're going to try to do that as part of tax reform, put reform in scare quotes. So they're going to try and do that. And the question is, what will happen? And this game, I don't know if you're familiar with this game of Jenga. If you're not, go ahead and just Google it and look it up. Jenga is what came to my mind because in Jenga, what you do is you've got this structure built with a bunch of blocks all stacked on top of each other. And as I understand the game, I've actually never played the game, but I've seen pictures of it and I I know about it. And you're supposed to pull out a block one by one. So each person takes a turn and you try to pull out a block so that this whole structure doesn't collapse, right? So that it stays standing. And that's exactly what came to my mind. Um, that's the kind of inspiration behind the title of today's show. So yeah, I have these you know, crazy ideas. I made a meme out of it. I'm getting better at making memes, right? I make them all nice and square and you can read the font. And so I think it's a good one if you want to go ahead and share it around. There is one thing though, right? And you know, memes, they're always going to have, you know, first of all, they're going to leave a lot unsaid. There's only so much you can say in a little picture and and some text, but sometimes there's going to be some disanalogy. So in Jenga, at least when you build the thing at the beginning and then you, you know, after you build it, you start taking the blocks out, but at the beginning it's solid. It's, you know, it's completely, uh, you know, stable and everything that the structure that you build in Jenga is obviously Obamacare was never a stable thing. Right. So actually, if you think about, you know, Obamacare could be what 
the picture in the meme looks like now, which is that it's already unstable. It's about to tip over at any point anyway. And then the GOP decide, okay, well, let's pull out this one block, this individual mandate, and hope that it stays standing for a little while longer. Uh, my thought is, particularly because, I mean, you know, as my understanding of the individual mandate of Obamacare is that it was supposed to make the whole thing work. It's like kind of the glue that would hold it all together in the sense that it forces people into the market for so-called health insurance. It's not insurance anymore. It's not really insurance. You're like prepaying vouchers for health care you may or may not need or ever get, even when you try to get it. Or you may not be able to afford to go seek the health care that you need once you've spent thousands on your premiums, right? There's that problem as well. So, yeah, is it health insurance? No, it's not really health insurance anymore. But nonetheless, what are they doing? They're forcing all these people into the market with the mandate. And what that does is spread the risk out enough so that the insurance companies who are being forced to take on the people with the pre-existing conditions, the bad deals, the people who are going to lose the money, the insurance companies supposedly can still stay in business. So I don't know what in the world they're thinking. They're, I mean, yeah, the mandate is unpopular. So they're thinking, okay, let's just make sure that we come back at the midterm elections and still have a majority in both houses. And then let's hope that Obamacare doesn't collapse until after that. Um, oh, the other thing that just Jean here in the chat room says, she says another disanalogy between Obamacare and Jenga. Again, the, you know, the first is in Jenga, at least you start out with a solid, stable structure that's built properly. Not, not true of Obamacare. Uh, just Jean says Jenga is voluntary. You can choose not to play if you don't want to. Yes, that as well. Um, you know, when you think of Obamacare, it itself. And, and this is the way I was talking about it. I was talking a little bit with Keith Weiner on Facebook this morning. We know from just basic economic theory, and I've talked about it some on the show in connection with some of the readings. I think they're Hayek readings that I had in my libertarian theories of law class. Hayek describes how every time you intervene in the free market, it causes horrible horrible problems, right? That, you know, and, and one of the big things that they talk about in this literature is that anybody trying to control the market, you know, from the top down, a government agency or something trying to control the market, tell it what to do. Those people do not have the same information than the actors who are actually, you know, in the field, so to speak. So with respect to healthcare, who has the information, the medical service providers, the people who create the medical devices, the prescription companies and stuff, they actually have all the market information that enables them to set a price and it takes all into account all the different working pieces. And when you try to insert some sort of government control into that, when you try to do that, you're going to create distortions, inefficiencies, you're going to cause pain. Every time you do this, and this is something that the libertarian economists have been great at explaining why it happens, how it happens, the more you intervene in the market, the more basically death and destruction you cause. But here's Obamacare. 
they say, okay, yeah, okay, economic theory, we know that if you insert a particular distortion into a market, you try to interfere in the market, it's going to cause some problems. But hey, how about we stack one on top of the other, a whole bunch of assorted different market interventions, you know, price controls here, regulations there, subsidies here, uh, mandate there, you know, all these different things that they're doing to the market. Let's put them all together, stack them one on top of the other, and let's just hope it stands up. So that's the sense in which I say it's not Jenga even at all, because at least in Jenga, you're dealing with settled principles of, of physics and structural engineering, maybe you could call it, you know, stacking these blocks one on the other. If you stack them properly, it's going to be a stable structure. It's going to stand. And then, you know, it's just when you pull all the different things out that you're taking a risk. But with Obamacare from the very beginning, it was just this precarious stack of various market interventions. Each market intervention going to wreak havoc. And they're hoping that you put a whole bunch of together and that they're going to cancel each other out and miraculously make the whole thing work. Some miracle. And what's the miracle? The miracle is that you can take a limited set of resources and somehow make them unlimited simply because everybody wants to wish and make it so. So everyone's wishing everybody good afternoon there in the in the chat room. Yeah, so this is the idea with the, the mandate. What is actually going on? I've got a link to the New York Times story where they talk about the Senate is going to end the mandate and the revised tax proposal. Why are they doing it? You'd think, okay, well, they're doing it because they really wanted to repeal Obamacare and they figured, okay, well, in this tax bill, this is their opportunity to somehow repeal it. And really, it turns out, I think, to be a matter of, quote, funding the tax cuts. And I always hate that language. You know, they have to fund a tax cut. They have to somehow figure out a way to pay for us to keep more of our own money so that they don't steal as much of our money uh, from us as, as they did before. It is disgusting, this idea that, you know, they have to, quote, fund the ability to let us keep more of our own money. So the language is warped. But, yeah, so what are they doing? They want to get rid of this mandate in order to help pay for the tax cut. And up until this morning when I'm reading, I had to read the article to try to figure out how is it that they are paying for a tax cut by getting rid of a mandate? I was thinking, are there enforcement costs or something that they're saving? That's got to be pretty trivial. No, it turns out that what they're hoping is that if they get rid of the mandate, that some of the people who, you know, in response to the mandate go into the market, but are people who are eligible for subsidies that maybe those people won't go in anymore. And so this is ridiculous, right? Because the, the, the savings that's going to come from getting rid of this mandate is supposed to come from the savings in the subsidies that the federal government is giving to people who buy under Obamacare. But if you're somebody who buys under Obamacare and you're getting a subsidy, aren't you less likely to get out of the market simply because the mandate is gone. The ones who are not going to go into the market are the ones who are relatively healthy, 
not either eligible for or taking a subsidy and who are deciding that the way, quote, insurance is being offered right now, it's a bad bet that self-insuring, you know, putting some money away is is the best option. Now, the only thing that I would say, you know, in terms of me personally, if the mandate is gone, yeah, it would make me, you know, a lot happier in the sense that I could buy, you know, perhaps a catastrophic policy and pay for my own health care as I go otherwise. I'm I'm relatively healthy. Um, so I would probably save some money and maybe also have some more choice in my health care by a very minimal policy and, and save some bucks. But then what would happen, right? So what happens? People are saying, yeah, bring on the budget cuts. That's what we need to do. They need to cut spending in order to, quote, fund fund the tax cuts. So, oh gosh, we we can't afford to let you keep more of your own money. That's what politicians are telling us. It is it's so gross and twisted. And I I've talked about it recently. I don't know if I talked about it on the show or just posted on social media. Even Ted Cruz has used that stupid funding language, funding tax cuts. Ugh. It, it, I mean, it, it, it's offensive. It's actually truly offensive that they speak this way. But so, okay, so what happens? They repeal this mandate, only the mandate. They just take out the mandate as part of this. First of all, as I said, I'm skeptical as to whether they're going to, quote, fund their tax cut because of this, because the funding is supposed to come from the savings and the subsidies that the federal government is giving to people who choose to get Obamacare policies. I would say the people who have gotten themselves addicted to the funding, that even if the mandate's gone, they're probably going to keep using, you know, the get, getting the quote insurance and having the government pay for part of it. They are not going to be easily weaned off of this now. Uh so I don't think they're going to get the savings anyway. So that, that's garbage. But then what's going to happen to the health insurance industry, the so-called insurance industry? I would predict that a lot of people, again, the peop- not the subsidy people, right, the people who are getting the subsidies, they probably think they're getting a great deal. They'll stay there even without the mandate. But then there's those of us who are thinking, hey, insurance is really, you know, kind of a bad deal. We're either going to get out of the market entirely, maybe we're just going to self-insure, or we're going to buy a much cheaper catastrophic policy, and we're not going to let those insurance companies continue to spread the risk of those people with pre-existing conditions. They're not going to be able to spread the risk to us anymore. We're not going to let them do it. And that may cause the insurance industry to collapse. Now, some people have been saying, okay, well, Maybe this is a move to get the whole thing to collapse. They can't repeal Obamacare, and so maybe they just want it to collapse. But my concern is this. My concern is what happens when it collapses. And this, I think, will accelerate the collapse of the insurance industry. You know, you're pulling out that block. It's already unstable. It's already teetering. It's on, you know, we've been hearing stories. I share them every so often about the so-called insurance industry consolidating all over the country, you know, the drastic increases in premiums and everything else. They're losing money, a lot of them anyway. And what if it collapses? I would say in this political climate where the Republicans can't even repeal Obamacare, there is a huge chance that what we'll get out of this is so-called single-payer socialized medicine. It's not going to be called that, right? So what will happen is 
everything will collapse. And then they'll say, oh, well, these health insurance companies, they're too big and too important to fail. And therefore, the government will have to take them over and suddenly we'll have socialized medicine. Oh, they're talking out in the chat room right now about what we're now paying for under Medicare and everything else. Medicare apparently now pays for sex changes. Hey, um, yeah. I mean, if, if people want to seek a sex change, more power to them. I would ask them to be very careful before they make that choice because it doesn't sound like it's an easily reversible choice. But certainly don't make your fellow man pay for it against his will. That would not be a good thing. John in the chat room says, single payer is better than what it is right now. I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure about that. Why do you think that is? Would you want to call in, John, and and talk about that? Because I don't know that single payer is better than what it is right now. And once single payer starts to get entrenched, it's going to be very hard to undo. What is better, clearly, is going back to a completely free market. And that would be that would be the best. But I I don't I'm not clear that single payer would be better. You'd say, "Okay, well, it's simpler and less confusing." But I think it's it's going to kill. And you know, one of the stories that I've got in the program notes for today is a story about awesome medical innovation. And the question is, would the great medical innovation continue? if we went ahead and and went into single payer and stuff and there was less and less incentive for anybody to innovate on the medical front. The story that I've got is from the Guardian UK, but it happens to be about something that's been going on in, in California. Scientists make first ever attempt at gene editing inside the body. And what they're able to do apparently, and they've done it with this one man is they've, they go in and they permanently alter your DNA. Permanently alter it in hopes of curing a disease. And what the patient that they have, his name is Brian Maddow, 44 years old. He intravenously received billions of copies of a corrective gene and at the same time a genetic tool to cut his DNA in a precise And the disease that he has is called Hunter syndrome, which I had not heard of before and actually did not look it up. So I don't know anything about it, but it's a metabolic disease of some kind. And this guy is taking the risk that when they do this, because this, they can't correct this. Um, If they make a mistake with this, they cannot alter it, but it does offer this substantial chance of curing this uncurable metabolic disease. Uh, Let me get to the description. This is the description that is given by one of the doctors here. It says Sangamo Therapeutics, Dr. Sandy McRae, says, we cut your DNA, open it up, insert a gene, stitch it back up, invisible mending, she says. It becomes part of your DNA and is there for the rest of your life. That's pretty amazing technology. And what they're saying is that they will know within a month, they would start to see signs 
you know, in terms of symptoms of the disease, I guess, that it's working. And then in three months, they would be able to do a test that would show, yes, the disease is a cure. Uh, Here's the description. It says, fewer than 10,000 people worldwide have the metabolic diseases, partly because many of them die very young. Those with Meadow's condition lack a gene that makes an enzyme that breaks down certain carbohydrates. And so then these, it says, build up in cells and cause havoc throughout the body. So they've got all sorts of things, uh, frequent infections, distorted facial features. It says hearing loss, heart problems, all kinds of horrible stuff from these metabolic conditions. So it would be wonderful if you know, he'd be able to have a normal life after this due to the gene therapy. Um, let me see if John in the chat room is single-payer. Let's see. It appears to be single-payer to him now. It says he's, he's paying substantially more than his neighbors. You know, with single-payer, there is going to be less selection of doctors. We're going to have more doctors leaving, less innovation and everything else. So right now, we do feel that, yeah, we are pain and subsidizing. But the question is, can we go in the direction of more freedom instead of less freedom? That's that's what I would definitely like. You know, I, I've talked before last year when I got the statement about what are the different plans, you know, and I, I'd buy an individual insurance policy. And they have this, there's supposedly a distinction between what they call preferred provider organizations and exclusive provider organizations. And the PPO, which gives you more flexibility of which doctors you select and stuff, it costs more, typically. And the EPO, where you are limited, there's exclusive providers in your network. When your your choice is limited, of course, then they can afford to give you a little bit cheaper premiums. But what they've been slowly doing is taking the flexibility out of the PPOs and turning them effectively into EPOs over time. So, yeah, I mean, that's the progression over time anyway. But the question is, could we actually reverse it? The Republicans have, have really messed it up. I think it's, it's going to be bad. But what I would love is that we could preserve uh, at least a semi-free market in medicine and still be able to take advantage of, you know, these wonderful medical innovations that are out there. There is so much good science and so much possibility and then you think, okay, is anything like this ever going to be funded in a single-payer system? And maybe we'll have a two-tier system, in which case you'll still be paying a whole lot more than your neighbors if you actually want to get, uh, you know, I, I posted that story a while ago. It was from Canada talking about what it's like single-payer there. And it was, I can't, I, I think it was over 3,000 patients or was it over 4,000 patients I think it was over 4,000 patients who were seen. uh, They were actually, there was no room for them in this one hospital over the course of a year. And all these patients had to actually be treated in the hallways of the hospital in Canada. And this is just like one hospital. Maybe um, Gail, who's in the chat room over here at Blog Talk, will remember the the exact number because I think you were retweeting it just recently. But the stats are, are just horrifying. So if you think, well, it's single-payer now, it's, it's nothing like single-payer yet. It is much better. 
And then I guess the only thing you hope is that if it does go to single payer, at least we can have a two-tier system. So we could, if we have piles of money or we're willing to spend pile of money on a particular disease or medical issue, that we can get care, that we can actually go and, and get it as opposed to having it rationed. Lord knows between all the data that's out there, you know, in, in the government databases about me and stuff, if they start rationing my care, they're not going to want me to get medical care, right? Terrible stuff. Um, Gail, do you remember what this what the stats were? It was it was for sure over three thousand. I remember that, but I was thinking it was over four thousand in one hospital, treated in the hallways in a single year in Canada because they just don't have the resources to treat patients anymore under single payer. Craig says just buy your insurance in Mexico. Hmm. Now that's interesting. So particularly if we don't have a mandate and we're not going to get dinged with the tax fee and stuff, that would be good. John says the system is so corrupt now it appears it, it will not be taken care of. Yeah. You know, I had the Jenga, the Jenga meme and then a friend of mine on Facebook posted a different meme and in the meme it listed all of the different pieces of legislation and stuff rules and everything that were intervening I guess in the um, you know in the medical sector of the economy and in you know in medicine and one of them just one of all of these hundreds or whatever that's listed on the meme just one of them is Obamacare. So that's only like one little piece of text in this whole sea of text that describes all the different interventions that are on the books, right, on the legislation, legislative books. And so, you know, people are like, oh, we have to repeal Obamacare. And even if you repeal Obamacare, it is. It's just crossing out this one thing. Now, mind you, it is a massive takeover of medicine. And medicine used to be one-sixth of the economy, and I don't know what it is now thanks to Obamacare, but yeah, it is. It's it's just the most recent and probably not even the most recent layer of the onion. You got to peel them back and peel them back hardcore. And, you know, first they have to have the will to do it. They don't have the will to do it. You get Ted Cruz, one of the better politicians in a debate with Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders has to keep pinging him like three different times. I watched this debate he has to ping him three different times to even get Ted Cruz to address the question of whether health care is a right. And then Cruz basically dodges it and starts talking about access and this and that. It's crazy. Um, people are talking in the chat room here about the increases in premiums, the percentages of premiums. What I've had to do pretty much each year is accept an increase in premium with a decrease in quality of policy. Every single year. And what I'm actually thinking of doing this year is buying the minimal policy that I can get that is still a PPO, one that supposedly might not even be acceptable under Obamacare. I don't know how they get to sell it to me. Weird things. I'm going to try to get it, pay less than I did this year, realize I have no insurance. Ba well, I mean, it would be some insurance. But this is the way I see it now. I see these PPOs. These PPOs are like, um, I don't know if you live in a place where the students go around, they sell these discount coupon books, and they do it as fundraisers for their clubs or things like this. And so you buy this little coupon book, 
and you can go to the local ice cream shop and get a buck off your ice cream and you can get two for one at this restaurant and, you know, but you buy that book. And I feel like with a plan anymore, I'm just buying the ability to pay in network prices for a bunch of doctors. That's what I'm buying. It's bizarre. And we pay a lot for it. I mean, you pay hundreds of a month, even if you're healthy. It's really, really crazy. Uh, just Jean says, facing a 19% increase. Yeah, like I said, I, I'm, I think I'm out of the rat race. I'm just, I'm just going to buy the very minimal PPO I can get my hands on and count on the fact that I'm going to probably stay relatively healthy. I think I'm in a good place. And that I'm going to pay as I go for most things. And if something really horrible happens to me, I'm going to be out there with a GoFundMe begging you guys to help me out because my insurance isn't going to cover all that much. Uh, it's got something. I mean, I'm, I don't know. I'm looking at like 15000 out of pocket max or something is supposedly it. So, And even at that, I mean, it's expensive. It's just so expensive. AK in the chat room says the idea about competition across the state lines, it would create competition and reduce price. Yeah, that was one of the ideas, one of the better ideas that was in the repeal plans that the Republicans had out there. And if we could get that, it would be beautiful. Craig says better to pay the fine. Maybe better to pay the fine, but then the question is, how am I going to get a decent price? Are the doctors going to sock it to me? for paying cash out of pocket for stuff. I don't know. I'll think about it because we've got this open enrollment. Yeah, why do we need government to, quote, allow competition? I know. Government should be completely out of this field. In any event, yeah, Republicans, you know, they're going to be patting themselves on the back if they pat, you know, they pass this tax so-called reform it's, it's a joke in and of itself because they don't cut spending. A uh, number of the tax cuts, especially for individuals, are temporary, so they create this thing that's going to happen in 2025 or who knows, or, you know, we're still going to have our tax cuts or not. Um, they're, and they're, they're just lame. Republicans are extremely, extremely lame. Craig says, uh, doctors who accept cash charge one-tenth of the price. I may have to look into that. You know, I'm going to do with the doctors I go to, I think I'm going to do a little bit of research this time around and say, hey, if I was to pay you cash, what would you charge? And maybe go that way. But, you know, at least, like I said, I'm thinking of doing a catastrophic policy, trying to get away with that. And I would feel a lot better. Um, You guys, I am up at the half of the hour. I'm going to take a little musical interlude, be right back. And I'm a little bit out of order on the program notes. If you're following along over at don'tletitgo.com, you see that I dove right into my little meme and everything else. I I was proud of my little meme, so I dove right in, but we'll back up and talk about some of the other stuff on there as well. I'll talk to you in a second.
Okay, everyone, I am back and over here in the Blog Talk Radio chat room. People are comparing notes about trying to purchase an individual insurance plan in the post-Obamacare world, all of the hazards and everything else. Just Jean says that she thinks she's already got the lowest premium PPO plan that's available in California. Um, you know, we can message about it, Jean, if you want to talk a little bit more, but I saw at least on the menu of options uh, that I found at one site that this so-called, I forget what they called it, like minimum something plan or whatever that was significantly cheaper and yet still a PPO. Now by significantly cheaper, I don't mean cheap. We're talking say, I don't know, 250 bucks less than what I'm paying this year, which is too much. So it's significantly cheaper but they're saying, in effect, it might not be legal for you. I, I, I still have to look into this and see, and I guess I don't have too much time, right, because we have a certain open window and we got to get it done. But that's the kind of thing I'm thinking of pursuing because you want to, you know, have access to the certain network of doctors that you still have and yet have some insurance. And it might actually be something resembling actual, you know, real insurance and if the Republicans, as lousy as they are, manage to get this done, then maybe I could have that for a while. But as I said, my prediction, they pull out the individual mandate. It's going to accelerate the collapse of the so-called health insurance industry, and it's going to leave wide open the opportunity for all of these statists, because they're all statists, most of them on the left and the right. Okay, there's the House Freedom Caucus, and they're better. But even the House Freedom Caucus, you know, um, Amash, he is willing to compromise, he's talked about, you know, in terms of legislation and stuff. So it's not like he holds out for the super most awesome free market option either. They're the better ones. But, you know, even the ones that we thought were better, the Republicans who bragged that they are not responsible for Obamacare, they failed to get the job done. They did not repeal this monstrosity. And they're doing something now that will accelerate its collapse, and they're doing it in an environment where I think the most probable outcome is they're going to zoom right into single payer. Too big to fail, take over the health insurance industries, and boom, you're there. It's going to be a mess. Um, yeah, AK in the chat room says there's no question it was designed to fail. Yeah, and that, but it was designed to fail by the Democrats. And then now the Republicans are doing something that deliberately is going to make it fail sooner when they know they couldn't even have achieved legislatively a half decent, even a real lousy repeal and replace effort. So it's, it's a joke. I do. I think they're playing Django with this thing, and I don't think the outcome is going to be good. So let's get on to uh, maybe I'll do the, the neutral news and then I'll do the, the better news. If you have been following news at all, you see have seen that Zimbabwe, the military has, you know, sort of this A and non-A. You know, we're talking about quantum and stuff again, because they say that they've not taken over the country. It's not a coup, but really they sort of have. And, um, you know, what they've done, I guess, is that they have uh, President Mugabe and, and his family in some sort of captivity in their home or something and they say that they're safe and I I saw there was a military leader who was speaking on some video about it and you know it is not a military takeover but in effect it is 
um, you know, it's a, this article that I've got from the Washington Post, they say, despite the assurances, the events bore all the hallmarks, excuse me, hallmarks of a coup. Military vehicles were stationed around parts of the city. The army took over the television station. And a uniformed general issued a statement warning that, quote, criminals in Mugabe's regime were being targeted. So it's a military version, I guess, of what's going on in Saudi Arabia, right? Saudi Arabia, they got the prince locking up all of these people, I think over 500 or something, in a luxury hotel. Um, No, you know, procedure, no proper legal procedure, as far as I can tell, was followed. The investigations were secret. But, you know, Trump's got all confidence in that. So that's, that's Saudi Arabia. Here we just have a blatant military takeover. Now, then the question is, why are they doing this? Mugabe, he has been ruling for what decades or something and he shouldn't have been and there's a lot of problems with his rule and he's 93 years old and so the concern is is that they were going to have his wife who's in her early 50s or something take over and it was going to be more of the same garbage so you could be sympathetic with you know the, the the reason to do this but the thing that struck me as unbelievable i i don't didn't really know much about Zimbabwe. But then the question is why, you know, why did this happen? Why now? You know, I guess he's kind of frail and everything, but it was recently they got rid of another vice president. So uh, his wife, Grace Mugabe is, is one of the vice presidents. And then there was another vice president that I guess last week they unseated to make way for her to be the one who was going to take over and, and succeed. And that's, I guess, the reason for this. But let me find the paragraph. Huh, I can't find the paragraph. Let me I'll have to go onto my Facebook and find you guys the paragraph that uh that I excerpted from it cuz for some reason as I'm scanning it live, I'm not able to find it. Excuse me for a moment here as I'm inelegantly scrolling through Facebook on my phone. I'm so proud of my little meme. So cute. Yeah, it says uh, Zimbabwe's political crisis reached a boiling point last week with the dismissal of Vice President, and I'm not going to pronounce his name. Emerson is his first name. There, I cannot pronounce the, the last name, sorry. Mugabe is as far as I got today. Uh, so they dismissed him, clearing the way for Mugabe's wife, also a Vice President, to succeed him. Now, get this part. Mugabe told supporters he had dismissed the other vice president, for disloyalty, okay, fine, and disrespect, okay, as well as what? Using witchcraft to take power, end quote. That's in this article, at least it was in the article a while ago. You know, sometimes they edit these articles on the you know, New York Times, Washington Post, whatever, these online websites, they edit them throughout the day. So I'll go, you know, I'll read it early in the morning, stick it in the program notes and look for a paragraph in a certain place. And I, then I can't find it later. And sometimes maybe they've deleted it, but I could not believe that, you know, here we've got a country in the world in the 21st century, and they're talking about dismissing a vice president of a country in the world in the 21st century, dismissing him because he was using witchcraft to take power. <laughs> awesome. Um, 
I mean, it's awesome in the sense that it's ridiculous, and I'm laughing at it. I, I, I just can't believe witchcraft. Now, I wanted to, when when I started thinking about witchcraft and stuff, I, I started to try to come up with a title and theme for the show, which tied this in with what I would say is equally witchcraft, which is the Republicans' hope that somehow Obamacare is going to amble along without a collapse into single payer when they pull out this individual mandate that there's some sort of witchcraft primacy of consciousness garbage in there too. But I couldn't come up with the right phrasing or word. So sorry, I, I left it with plain Django with Obamacare, but you know, look at this, that witchcraft in politics in the 21st century. Yeah, it just Jesus. Yeah, witchcraft of the way. Okay, I knew there was witchcraft out there still, and you know, there's so many mystics and so-called spiritual types everywhere. Fine, but to actually say that there's a leader of a country in the 21st century who is dismissing a vice president, accusing that vice president of using witchcraft to take power. I mean, it, it's just yeah. Um. Corey says she's from the home of witchcraft in Salem, Massachusetts. I have visited like witch museums and stuff in Salem. So I know all about that stuff. Yeah. It was going on in America in 17th, 18th century, but no 21st century anywhere. It is bizarre. Selflessness in the chat room says Zimbabwe's annual inflation rate, 245% talking about witchcraft. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about witchcraft in the Fed here in the United States, and you know, Keith Weiner would love to come on and probably tell me all about that. Uh, actual witchcraft. Actual witchcraft. That's the reason. So, so why do I call this just sort of neutral news is because we have no idea where this is going. Uh, we don't know if it's going to be any better or worse. It looks like things were really bad and that there was a legitimate concern that they would either stay on the bad path or perhaps get worse if the wife took over. You know, th- Having somebody's wife take over the head of a government position is just bizarre by itself. You know, you need to have an election and maybe, you know, God, you know Hillary was going to be president here but supposedly she had jumped through a few hoops if she was going to be president this idea of you know the the husband dies and so the wife just sort of takes over as the head of a country that's kind of barbaric as well so i guess we're not surprised hopefully it'll get better for some people that's always the hope is that the quality of life is going to get better for some people there so that's our neutral news let me see do i have Oh, I have another piece of neutral news. I'll go to the neutral news, and then I'll go out to all the fun and good stuff after that. I think you guys don't mind that, do you? There's a lot of better stuff. One of the good things, of course, was the the gene editing, so I kind of skipped and gave you some of the good there. Here's the neutral news. It's just kind of funny. From from the headline, it looks like it's going to be good news because here's the Washington Post. The headline says, there's a new planet in the neighborhood, and it looks like a nice place to live. I'm like, wow, okay, that's pretty cool. Like a planet that after the climate change alarmists and stuff, they'll tell us we're destroying our planet. We're not going to be able to live here. So, hey, escape plan, right? You can go and live on this other planet maybe, and that sounds really awesome. That's what the headline is promising. There's a new planet. It looks like a nice place to live. So what's the evidence that it looks like a nice place to live? Apparently it's just 
basically the temperature that they anticipate it being on the planet because we actually don't have the technology right now to look at this particular planet. It's called Ross 128b or something. Um, We don't know enough about it to know whether it's actually habitable. So, uh, you know, there's some disconnect between the editors who create the headlines for this thing and the actual content of the article. Let me read you an excerpt that seems to contradict the headline. It says, though the study authors call Ross 128b a temperate planet, it's not clear whether it falls within the habitable zone, the Goldilocks region where a planet is just warm enough for liquid water to exist on its surface. Additionally, no current telescopes are capable of analyzing the wavelengths of light coming from the planet which might provide clues about the existence of an atmosphere and the potential for life. But when the powerful 39-meter extremely large telescope, that's its name, extremely large telescope, comes online in 2024, this world will be one of its first targets. Okay, so what in the world are they doing with this headline telling us it looks like a nice place to live when they don't know essential things about this planet that would make it a nice place to live this is another example, and God, Washington Post, oh God, I subscribe to the Washington Post, it's so disappointing. You know, there's this tendency for the news media to sensationalize science stories, and particularly stuff about health studies, right? They're going to tell you, oh my gosh, you know, if you don't get enough sleep, then this horrible thing's going to happen, or yes, this week coffee is the elixir of life, and then next week it's going to cause 50 billion heart attacks. Extremely disappointing, but it is, it's a clear example of the fact that the editors who make the headlines and stuff, they are often not really aware of the content of the article. They might just skim it and they're in a rush. And so maybe they thought, okay, look, it's habitable. It's a good, it looks like a nice place to live. And it's not. So it's neutral. There's, you know, potentially a place that we could live and we won't find out for sure until 2024. Awesome. Craig says it might just be humor. It's not presented that way, right? It's not presented that way. Let me go back to it because I just was clicking back over to my blog and my little program notes. It's listed under speaking of science. And I don't think speaking of science is like a humorous section. I think it's their science section. They like to be a little clever by calling it speaking of science. Josh in the chat room is reminding me of a story that I saw the other day. They changed the blood pressure guidelines, so now more people have, quote, high blood pressure. Yeah, I think they want a bunch of people to take medication and stuff. I don't know. Uh, Dale in the chat room says, exoplanet studies are not about places for us humans to go and live. Okay, so it's even worse than, I, than, than what I was able to figure out by myself. Dale says, it's not about places for us humans to go and live. They are studies in general about planets that might support any life at all, including life that evolved there. Okay. The, you know what? Us, as humans, right? We're concerned about live, live for us. That would be wonderful. Yeah. A whole bunch of adults now classified as having high blood pressure. The only time that I had what was be called high blood pressure was the time I was in the hospital for my kidney surgery, and they gave me a whole bunch of stupid opioids and made it hard for me to breathe 
And so, yeah, my blood pressure went way the hell up for like a day and a half. It was pretty scary stuff. But otherwise, even on the new guidelines, I think I'm good, which is nice. Yeah, a lot of American adults. And so then they want to put everybody on these blood pressure medications, which are potentially extremely life-sucking is the way that I would talk about it. Um, Don't want to do that at all. Not at all. Okay, so let me go back and talk about some of the good stuff. So at the very beginning of the program notes at the blog, I have a link to the show that I did. And thank you for those of you who listened to the show and indulged me. I did an entire show talking about my argument for what the Supreme Court should rule in Carpenter versus United States. Carpenter versus United States is the case that's coming up. It's going to be heard by the Supreme Court on November 29th. And at issue is whether the government getting from the cell phone service provider, getting what they call cell site location data. There's this data that the cell phone companies, your providers, that they collect as part of doing business. And it has to do with your usage of various cell sites and the cell sites. I mean, you've experienced you know, what happens, you go from one cell site to the other as you're driving along. And sometimes as you do that, your calls get dropped and stuff. But what the service provider tries to do is provide you seamless service for your cell phone. And they do that because they have a cell site located every so often, you know, they have a certain amount of coverage, as they call it. And while it's not really precise, it's not as precise as GPS, the cell site location data can approximate your location as you go out through, you know, through your daily life. And as I recall in Carpenter, what was at issue was, you know, taking 127 days of cell site location data. And is that a search within the meaning of the fourth amendment? And what this, case, you're not going to be surprised that I'm talking about it, because what this case ends up bringing up is the so-called third-party doctrine that I've talked about forever, and it brings that at issue. It brings it before the Supreme Court. What is the application of the third-party doctrine to data like this, this cell site location data? And I spent that entire show on Carpenter versus United States talking about my argument for what should happen in the case. And my presentation there was fairly logical. And I was just going through step by step and explaining along the way. It was, you know, 90 minutes. I think I took a full 90 minutes explaining it. And what I've done at the beginning of this week, the reason I stuck that link in here, finally, at the beginning of this week, I completed a 1000 word opinion piece explaining that argument. And I was extremely proud of what I did with it. Um, you know, some of the turns of phrase and stuff I was happy with and everything else. I think it's logical. It, to me, might be for some people a bit terse, but I had a friend who read it and she said, no, she didn't really think so that it was good that way. She made a couple uh, minor suggestions. It's currently under exclusive submission to New York Times. Otherwise, I might be able to read it to you. I can't read it to you. I I don't know. I doubt the New York Times is going to take it. They have till tomorrow to decide it's really hard to get a piece in New York times, but I figure why not shoot for it? The case isn't being heard until November 29th. I'd like to get the piece placed somewhere where a clerk for Gorsuch could see this thing, or maybe a clerk for Sotomayor or something, who knows 
somebody who really wants to do something with the third party doctrine and is open to hearing a very radical suggestion. Because as you guys know, I have a suggestion that is radical, but at the same time ties into our country's longstanding legal traditions, namely the common law. So I've got this common law based approach for what should happen to the third party doctrine and in particular that I think we should overturn Smith versus Miller. And I put that argument in the piece, sent it off on its merry way. I'm very excited about it. And I'll let you know where it ends up. As I said, New York Times, they require three business days of exclusive submission to consider it. And then once you probably don't hear from them, you just go on and you submit it elsewhere. And I'm going to go ahead and do that. You're going to read it eventually. The question is, where are you going to read it? You know, nobody in the world takes it. And I put it out on my blog and I beg people to get it into Gorsuch's hands or something. Somebody's got to read this thing, you know, and in it, of course, I put a hyperlink to my St. John's Law Review article talking in detail about you know, how my solution for the third party doctrine, how that could be implemented and still preserve the government's ability to use secret agents and all the things they were concerned about when they originated that silly doctrine. So, um, yeah, I was really happy about that. And then the question is, was my ability to just get that in there and kind of get that finished, was it somehow sparked or inspired or facilitated by this interesting process that I've been going through. I have a friend, Tammy, who I I talked about on the last show. So she is training to become a consultant, what they call a KonMari consultant. KonMari is this, I forget the name. There's a a name for when you just put, um, when you smash two names together. So Marie Kondo is the woman's name, and then they have this KonMari as the, God, I forgot what that is. Anyway, um, if you guys can think of the term that I'm, I'm trying to think of when you put two last names together. So it's like, you know, Benifer was like Ben Affleck and Jennifer, what's her name? Um, that That's the sort of term that I'm looking for. But anyway, it's KonMari and it's a Japanese, you know, method in effect. It's, it's rooted in Japanese traditions, a Japanese method of, going through all of your possessions and deciding which ones to keep and which ones to discard. The phrase that you may have heard is spark joy. And what Kondo recommends that you do is that you go through everything that you own, everything that you own, category by category. So you don't go room by room and say, oh, God, you know, this room looks a little bit cluttered, and I think I'll get rid of a little bit here and a little bit there, and essentially leave everything where they are. You go through everything that you own category by category, starting with your clothing. Clothing, I think, ends up being a good place to start, and it gives you a nice momentum and everything else. And within each category, you have to, like, take everything out of the closet or whatever and just put it all in one place, and then – People are familiar with David Allen's GTD, Getting Things Done Method, you know, where you have your inbox and you're supposed to, like, pick up each item and do something with it. There's only three things you can do with it, and you attack it. So with Condo, yeah, you you get your whole stack of shirts, say, or whatever, right? And then you pick up each one in turn, and you ask yourself, the question you're supposed to ask yourself is, does it spark joy? And... 
it's an emotion, right, that you're asking yourself. It's a, what, what emotion do I experience when I pick up and feel this shirt? Now, some things you pick up and you'd say, okay, oh God, you know, I get some really bad vibes when I pick up this up. You just put it in the discard pile. Other things, maybe you're not so sure. Maybe you got to try it on. And trying it on can sometimes be the the game changer. You know, you try it. It's like, oh, I don't like the way this fits. What in the world? Why was I you hanging on to this and it's gone? Uh, but other things, it's probably a little more subtle. It might be harder decision to to make. You say, okay, well, you know, does it spark joy? And maybe it's something that is serving you well. So it's not particularly exciting, but you go to it all the time. It's a very reliable friend. You know, you're. I've got, you know, these black cashmere cardigans, you know, you just throw them on and whatever, something like that. You're going to keep it because you just go to it time and time again. And it's it's an easy staple. Uh, it's not always going to be because it's sexy. But, you know, as I, I'm going through some of the stuff, and you know, trying it on, oh, I love this, you know. And so I go through and I've been through most of my clothing now. Almost all, there's a couple categories. It's like accessories and purses or, you know, so guys still got to finish it up. I'm, I'm done with almost all of it. And all these bags are going off to Goodwill. I'm, I'm one of these people who I'm both blessed and cursed with the following problem, which is that I can wear the same clothes for decades. Like my size just doesn't essentially change at all. So you never, or, you know, at least I, with respect to some of those things, I thought they, there were things I put on. I was like, this doesn't fit right. You know, things, some things do sort of change here and there, or maybe I was under the impression that it fit better than it did. And I just let it sit in my closet and didn't wear it. So yeah, I'm just getting rid of all this stuff. And it is so great. Um, You know, the other thing that happened to me is I downsized. So I moved, I li- used to live in a place where I had a walk-in closet, this huge, I mean, it was huge huge a huge walk-in closet imagine it had a skylight in my walk-in closet so not only was it huge it was well lit I could see everything and so I was able you know to lay everything out in an organized way and I was able to see it all access it all and wear a variety of things a lot more and then if you don't have the space for it what do you do you like cram it in these different places and then you end up only going for the things that are easy to access so now I find myself going, oh, yeah, I'm going to wear that thing that I haven't worn in forever. You feel like you can, and I was talking with Tammy yesterday, I went through all the, you know, dresses, special occasion dresses. And stuff. I feel like I can go shop in my closet for the next occasion. I don't have to go buy a new dress. I've got these great dresses and I've tried them on and I know, you know, what, what it looks like. So it's fun. It's awesome. And I have felt just this sense of energy that comes from just knowing what's there and then having it all organized and it's we're, not, we're only partway through the process and it's already having that effect so the question is was the momentum that was created just from the beginning of this process something that helped me finally get that done that was part of it for sure there was one other thing that did it and there was a news story that new york times had published on monday about these so-called shadow brokers and I link actually a hyperlink to the story in the op-ed, you know, to help make it even more topically relevant, but also because, yeah, it's one of the things we need to think about. Shadow brokers, in the way that the Times has described it, they are actually deploying the weapons out there that the NSA has. So whereas 
Edward Snowden, you know, people are very mixed on Snowden, but I tend to be a fan of Snowden and defend him as someone that I see who is, has been sometimes mistaken, made some errors, crucial errors of judgment, maybe in letting Assange talk him into going to Russia or whatever. We could, we could have a debate about that, how wise it is to, for him to be where he is and what choices he had. But I believe that there's a core of him who was a principled opponent of these NSA programs and who had decided for good reasons, and I've described them on past shows, I'm not going to belabor again, but he had decided for good reasons that the only way to properly challenge these NSA programs was to expose them to the public and also to provide the information necessary to create standing. Standing is that term of art for court. You can't even go to court to challenge these programs unless you have so-called standing, and you can't have standing unless you have evidence to show that you were one of the people who was harmed by this thing, right? So Snowden has created the legal environment possible for this Carpenter case to come up through the courts, which is a beautiful thing. Um, What you've got now after Snowden is you have these shadow brokers, and the shadow brokers have done more than just expose in general terms what the NSA is doing. They have actually released the code of some of the NSA tools that the NSA has developed and that they use. And from what I understand from the New York Times article, we've got Russian hackers in South Korea and South Korea, North Korea, North Korea, please not South Korea. Um, You know, these hackers getting these tools and sometimes it's people maybe who just want to rip you off and steal your identity, but in other ways it might be creating the ability for Russia or other rogue regimes to interfere in in our elections and all sorts of other things. Um, That article being there, of course, was a a spur for me to get this thing done. Why? Because the November 29th hearing date is is coming up as well. So as I said, I've deployed it out there and I'm going to keep submitting it till it gets published somewhere, hopefully as wide an audience as possible, hopefully an audience that will get it in front of Gorsuch clerks. When it does get published and I send the links out, if all of you guys can share, share, share that piece. I, it would be greatly appreciated. Oh God, they're talking about government joy in the chat room. You guys are, I'm trying to go on to the positive topics and you're back to, uh, to government. Yeah, I'm talking about NSA right now, but I'm talking about, Hey, I got this thing done. It's a baby, right? So this is essentially the kind of most important argument that I have that I've put together in my whole academic career, put in one 1,000 word op-ed that I'm just sending out there and hoping can do some good. So for me, the focus of this one is not on the government aspect. It's on the accomplishment aspect that I'm happy with a way that I presented this argument in just a thousand very packed words. Um, Oh, they're talking about people sparking constitutionality in government. It would be wonderful, right, to spark pure constitutionality in government. I, I do have hope for a few politicians in there still. I, Craig in the chat room is going to say, don't even have hope for Amash. Craig, what about Amash, if you're there? Is, is, is he somebody that I can still hold out some hope for? You know, Cruz, as I said, he's he's been disappointing. He really has. It's It's incredibly sad. I'm a little bit after the top of the hour. I'm going to go ahead and do a little more music, and I will be right back. 
Okay, everybody, I am back. And the title of today's show was Playing Jenga with Obamacare. That's what we talked about really more toward the beginning. And what I've got left really is just a couple of nice stories, right? Do I have only just one good news story left before I say goodbye to you guys today? Hmm. Might have to do a little riff on Duran Duran there. We'll have to see. You guys have any other thing in the chat room that you want to bring up as well? Yeah, Dale in the chat room says, definitely want to see the op-ed in a major print web space. So do I. So do I. And again, what's the most important thing for me is to maybe get a Gorsuch or Sotomayor or both, get those clerks reading it and just even considering it. Because whereas I think you should get rid of that doctrine entirely, I am not suggesting that that's necessarily what they do. What I have done is suggest that there's a distinction they can make and they can draw a bright line and limit it, get rid of Smith and Miller entirely. And it's a radical suggestion, but I think it makes perfect sense. And um, I, I focus on something that's very accessible to the layman when I argue for it, I think. So I'm going to look forward to hearing what all of you think about it as well when it does get released. And as soon as I'm able, you know, for example, if I'm still submitting it next week, but the places that I'm submitting it to aren't exclusive anymore, then I can read it on the podcast and let you guys know what I think. Maybe I can even stick it on the blog or something. So just stay tuned, follow me around blog, social media, whatever. I'll, I'll let you guys know as and when I, I get a placement for it. So here's the awesome News. Australia votes for gay marriage. I don't understand how their legal system works. They're saying because Australia voted for it, this clears the path to legalization. So it doesn't itself constitute legalization, but it looks like it's going to be legalized, that there's not any problem with it. Now, let's see here. Of 12.7 million Australians who took part in a government survey, 61.6% voted yes, 0.4% voted no. That's what the officials announced on Wednesday morning. Participation was high with 79.5% of the voting age Australians sending back their postal ballots. Prime Minister Turnbull says, quote, the Australian people have spoken and they have voted overwhelmingly yes for marriage equality. And he called the survey in a move described by advocates as a, oh, wait, he had called the survey as a delay tactic. Okay, that's right. He says they voted yes for fairness, voted yes for commitment. They voted yes for love. Um, So the survey is a delay tactic? Oh, maybe, so maybe the people who did the survey, he was thinking that what they're trying to do is they were trying to undermine it, but maybe it backfired. That's the only thing I can understand there because it sounds like he's sympathetic to it. The high turnout and unequivocal result amounted to a rebuke for Australia's most conservative politicians, many of whom saw a majority of their constituents vote to support same-sex marriage despite their arguments against it. Woohoo! It sounds like the conservatives there are just as out of touch with the so-called base or the people in the, in the party as here, you know, because here I would say a lot of people who call themselves Republicans are not necessarily abortion opponents or anything else. There's a lot of very vocal people who are, but 
I would say the average person is is not like some of the some of the leadership out there. So, oh, Freedom Breeze in the chat room says, "Does Snowden know you want to interview him?" I've a couple times tried, uh, and I even tried through his attorney. You know, maybe if I get my op-ed placed, then eventually I would get an interview with the guy. That would just be so fabulous. I, you know, I would just actually, even if he just reads it for Snowden to read this, because one of the things, um, and I'll go back to gay marriage in a second. Sorry, guys. One of the things with Snowden is that Snowden has always talked about technology as a solution or maybe pressure from other governments and stuff that that's a solution. And the one thing that I've always thought was the solution was litigation. And in particular, and I argue in the piece, I I explain in the piece why it is that the solution, the way to get long-term reliable protection for privacy in our country is to put all of this data, this third-party data, back under the Fourth Amendment. Because the third-party doctrine just basically takes all this data out of the protection of the Fourth Amendment. We need to put it back in. And we don't need just to put part of it back in. We need to put all of it back in for anybody who is not a criminal, essentially. Third-party doctrine was created for criminals. It was extended into the non-criminal context with absolutely no justification in the 1970s. That's the root of my argument. And there's no there's no reason to have done this. And so now they're like, oh, well, we'll take for granted that we extend it into the non-criminal context, that we treat all of everybody like criminals. We'll just take that for granted. And then it's just all hemming and hawing about, well, it's, you know, Smith and Miller were fine, but, you know, it's unreasonable to collect 127 days of cell site location data. That's how particular they want to be about when you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Well, not cell site location data for 127 days, but the phone records and the bank records and Smith versus Miller, those are fine. And I say, no, 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 you throw the whole thing out. You go back to where it was at the origins, which was criminals, you know, investigating these guys in the middle of a criminal conspiracy. And I explain, you know, the common law roots for the, for the distinction. It's it's pretty clear argument. So I think this is the long-term solution. I have actually explained that to, for example, I met Glenn Greenwald. I met him once. I went to a book event of his up in L.A., and in particular, I just wanted to shake his hand. In, in part, you know, Glenn Greenwald, he does a lot of icky, horrible things, but I was happy to see him help, you know, the information that Snowden released to help it get out there. Shake his hand, and then I explained to him this, and maybe he didn't get it, but I doubt it. I just People don't want to see a principal solution, perhaps because my solution is based in property rights and Greenwald doesn't like property rights. But I've also tried it with uh, Ben Wisner, Wisner, I don't know how to pronounce it, but he's the ACLU attorney. I had an email exchange with him trying to see if I could talk to Snowden. Nobody wants me to talk to Snowden. I think Snowden could be amenable to this argument because he does have a sense of American traditions is a little more libertarian in his thinking, uh, whereas the ACLU attorney, Greenwald, these are liberal guys, and they don't want to hear a solution to this issue comes from the realm of 
property and contract rights. They just don't want to hear it. So I feel like, you know, it's not like I'm going to get Snowden's attention on Twitter. He's got how many millions followers or whatever. You know, I, I, I get all excited. I get to tweet back and forth a little bit with Jordan Peterson, you know, but that's not the magnitude of followers that that Snowden has. I would love to have an exchange with Snowden. I would love to have, you know, just Snowden read that piece and, and let it have that effect. So does he know I want to interview him? Probably not. I'm pretty sure that anybody that I've tried to put the request through is filtering me out. Pretty sure about that. And I think, you know, that Snowden, because he has an affinity for Rand, and this is a unique argument, you know, it doesn't come from her. She didn't say a whole lot about privacy at all. This is just me coming at this problem, having been influenced by her and having, you know, sort of thought about this problem for so long. This is the solution that I would propose. And I, and I think even though they don't want to adopt my framework for privacy wholesale there's no way they would do that right we don't we don't even have sort of the legal framework in place in our country to go over to the type of model that I have you can't do it wholesale but what you could do is you could at least draw a bright line for the third party doctrine before Smith versus Miller keep it confined to that criminal context do it because there's a common law reason to do so we could do that and then as the, you know, the way that I put it is that privacy would be legalized. We would actually legalize privacy. We'd make it possible. Now, not everybody would choose. I'm not saying that there aren't problems with privacy that come from corporations, you know, Facebook and everybody else trying to snoop into your stuff and then sell your information or, you know, ads, pummel you with ads. And yeah, there are issues. But to me, the biggest threat with privacy is always the government getting their hands on the information, you know, this whole 1984 Orwell scenario. And we've already seen under the Obama administration, I don't know if it's going on under Trump, but I assume it's going to go on under Trump too. They had, they're, all these politicians are the same, that they actually use information that they know about you and your beliefs and the stuff you put out there. They use that to hurt you subject you to an IRS audit, make it harder for you to obtain nonprofit status, all the things that were done to some conservative groups and conservative individuals under the Obama administration through the IRS. That's just one example of government using information that it obtains about you to selectively harm you. So, um, you know, that's the concern for me more is, is government having this. And, you know, yeah, you know, Google and everybody else, they can choose to sell your information, but that's much different than a president being able to pull out the pen and the phone. And we saw that Obama did this in the wake of the, I think it was the Sandy Hook shooting. He put an executive order out there that he ordered the combining of some of these government databases. So, you know, this alphabet soup agency gathers this little piece of information about you and that alphabet soup agency has that and that alphabet soup agency has this. And all the president has to do is whip out the pen and the phone and order the combining of these databases about you. And then suddenly they've got this full picture of you and your life and, and your daily activities. That's the 1984 scenario or the you know the way I talk about it is the the Benthamite panopticon panopticon p a n o p i 
O P T I C O N. Yeah, I have to be typing to know how to spell something. Panopticon. If you Google that, you'll you'll see what I mean. We sort of almost live in that, thanks to this doctrine. Wouldn't it be nice to change it? It would be great. So, yeah, I, I do. I hope I hope Snowden reads it. I hope that Gorsuch, his clerks, somebody reads it. What I do know is some legal academics have seen my argument, and I think they just think it's too radical, too far-fetched, and I'm not surprised by that. But I, I from everything I know, I think it's right that this would be the the proper way to go and that it would give a bright line, which is nothing that anybody seems to be arguing for. There's no principled bright line that I saw in the arguments that they have. There is one brief that I should check out. They call it Restore the Fourth, and that might have an interesting argument. But I've been out there with this argument since at least 2014, published in St. John's Law Review. And so it, it's, it's been out there for a while, but it just hasn't gotten into the right hands yet. And, you know, even if it gets in the right hands, it's not, they're not necessarily going to take it up, but it'd be nice to at least get it heard and give it the, the best chance that it has. So when I publish it, if you can help me, that'd be fabulous. Uh, back to gay marriage, right? So uh, we've talked about, we haven't talked about it for a while. And when I posted this on Facebook earlier today, I didn't get anybody saying, oh, you know, gay marriage is not a good idea or, anything else, but there have been times in the past where people say, you know, are you really for gay marriage and a marriage is between a man and a woman and all, all of those things. And is it non objectivist to support gay marriage? And I, I don't think that it's non objectivist to support gay marriage. I would say the most consistent objectivist position would say that government would have no say over marriage except for maybe putting forth an option, like sort of a menu of contractual defaults that could exist between two people. So you have two people who decide to, you know, enter into the relationship and there's certain defaults that you could get by getting married. And those would have to do with inheritance or the ability to come in on somebody's hospital bedside and make life-saving decisions. And you know, there's a lot of important functions that you know, typically a, a spouse would take care of. So maybe, you know, government could provide these default arrangements for you. doesn't mean that you have to have a relationship in which all those defaults hold and everything, you know, you, you opt out of it. But if, you know, government would say, hey, if you get married, then you can have this. Just like government does this with copyright. They say, hey, you know, if you jump through XYZ hoops, then we give you this thing called copyright and you've got this protection for X number of years and you can go to court and the blah, blah, blah. Similar sort of thing. They give you this default. But should government be in the business of saying, as between two consenting adults, what is or isn't? You know, some debates get interesting. Like, you know, there's no way this would extend to children because children are not capable of, you know, engaging in any sort of consensual behavior around marriage or sex or anything else. So, no, it's not going to be, you know, suddenly we're going to have the government rubber stamping pedophilia or something. It's bizarre. Um, but the other thing is that people have talked about, well, what about, you know, uh, having multiple husbands or wives, multiple spouses like they do under the Mormon law? Is that going to be now sanctified or, you know, whatever by the, the, the states. I, I don't see necessarily, I, I would say that 
there's always, you know, this, this idea that there's one partner who would be the best person, you know, for example, to make certain decisions, to be that one by your bedside, everything else, having, you know, multiple spouses and stuff, would the state provide a default for that? How would you work out, you know, which one it is? And those are all very personal decisions. So, yeah, you know, I know there's, there's some people are into the polyamory movement and all of those things. Everybody would have to work out their own arrangements. I don't see a government saying, yeah, we're going to provide a default for something other than the two consenting adult scenario. And if you have two consenting adults, I don't care if they are same sex, different sex, both of them had, you know, sex change operations or whatever. Does it matter if you have two consenting adults and they want to enter into this, sort of relationship, then why not allow them to do that? Why not treat them the same as anybody else who wants to make that sort of commitment or arrangement, particularly when there's so many different benefit scenarios? Now, then what is the problem, right? What is the potential problem that even free market-oriented people, even those of us who are very liberal about social issues, what is the problem that we might have with it? Unfortunately, today, with anti-discrimination law being what it is, then if the government rubber stamps a certain thing as marriage, that will bring into play a requirement that employers, for example, provide certain benefits to the partner. And potentially the employer is somebody rooted in the Middle Ages. No, I don't know. I'd be a little... For for me, myself, I could not imagine discriminating against a gay couple. And if there's a business that I know that is really discriminatory against gays, I would try to avoid doing business with it. You know, I feel pretty strongly about it. Um, so, yeah, would I nonetheless still think that that business, that business who thinks that they shouldn't have to pay benefits to homosexual partners, should that business be able to discriminate in that way? Okay, yeah, sure. Legally, they should be able to. And a law like this might force onto them, you know, the ability or force onto them that, they, you know, they no longer have the ability to decide whether to pay benefits to the homosexual partner or not. They'll have to be forced by certain laws and stuff to do that. So that's not perfect. It's not, it's not a great thing. But overall, you know, Overall, I think that it's wonderful to legally recognize those couples and and not treat them as any sort of second-class relationships. Uh, So people in the chat room are still talking about the the metadata and my op-ed, third-party doctrine and all that stuff. I don't know, you know, does the monitoring change our behavior? I think it does to a certain extent, but some people are just going to go on and live their lives despite they really are. They're not going to, they're not going to give up on that. Any reaction on the gay marriage? Anybody in the chat room say, okay, you're wrong, Amy, if you're happy about this. The Jezebels, the band that does the song that I've been using as the intro song. And, you know, I've published a couple interviews that I've been lucky enough to do with Haley Mary. Jezebels were out there actively campaigning in favor of this, not surprisingly, so it must be a cool thing 
for them to enjoy this week as well. It's it's just wonderful. It's nice to have a you know equal treatment. One person that I won't feel sorry for is someone like uh, I forget her name right now, Kim something or another. She was that clerk in the South, and she decided as a clerk who normally gives out marriage licenses that she was not going to serve, that she was going to be a principled opponent of same-sex marriage by refusing to do her job as a city clerk. I have no sympathy for that at all. I mean, I would say, no, you you have no right to not do your job because of this. You know, in your personal life, if you say, okay, I have an apartment building and you know, I want to go ahead and discriminate against married homosexual couples or, you know, again, I'm an employer and I don't want to pay the same benefits to a homosexual couple as I do to a heterosexual couple, et cetera, et cetera. Adopting of kids, all that kind of stuff. I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, to me, it, Personally, I would not do the discrimination, but yeah, should you have the legal right to do it? If you're the one who is deciding whether to give those benefits, yeah, you should have the legal right. That's the only downside as far as I can tell is that it forces some people to engage in transactions that they disagree with. It's it, For them, it's not voluntary. If you're a government employee, you need to uphold the current law. John in the chat room says, why not just get rid of marriage? Yeah, what would, you know, what would marriage, what would any legal treatment of marriage look like in a proper society? As I said, to me, I envision that the government would set up for you certain defaults that come along with marriage. And so that it would have something to say about what would constitute a valid marriage in that context. And it, ha- you know, again, it has to do with inheritance and the ability to, um, you know, make life-saving decisions if somebody's like unconscious in the hospital or whatever there's things that you really want you know somebody who's in, able to do that right there's a designated person and government could provide you know provide a default if you haven't gone out of your way to specify what you want these are all just default rules right you can contract around them or specify around them right wills and uh, advanced directives as they call it right so you can do that, but it's nice to have those defaults to fall back on. Like, as I said, copyright. We have a default in copyright, and I think it's good for government to provide that as well. Craig says contract is enough, but some people don't make an explicit contract, right? Some people don't make a will. And so the law has always provided defaults. If you don't make a will, if you don't make a contract, then we'll give you this default, it's something to follow. There's, so, there, so there is something there. Um, one more thing in my little program notes. I only have a couple of minutes, and I'm going to let, let you guys go. I've just got a Duran Duran song. I remind you guys, you can check out my playlist. There's this song there that I have in the, in the program notes, Come Undone. The lyric that got me the other day was... Um, let me see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Here's the lyric. We'll we'll try to stay blind to the hope and fear outside, and it seemed exactly perfect in today's climate because there's just so much irrational hope and irrational fear driving all the politics and the news and everything else out there. And I, I do think, yeah, you go out there and look for some of the better news. You try to get some, you know, personal 
victories in your own life, you know, get some projects done that you've maybe had on the back burner for a while and things like that. And that can help you stay blind to both the hope and the fear. Hope is the ongoing topic. Fear for sure. We all know that fear is not a good motivator. You'd argue that hope, if you're clinging on that too much, is is not a good one either. So enjoy. Uh, Enjoy the list. From what I understand, Apple Music now has this thing where you can follow people. I think you guys can follow me on Apple Music. I may have more than one playlist public. I'm not sure. So I'll start to dive into that if people are interested. But I I am proud of my Duran Duran list. I was a long, long time Duran Duran fan. If you Google, was Simon Le Bon influenced by Ayn Rand? You'll find my little post where I talk about meeting Le Bon. But yeah, I like to think of myself as somewhat of a, a Duran connoisseur. And I'll keep niggling with that list. I think there's at least at least one song that I haven't put on there yet that I wanted to. And I'll, as I play it, sometimes I take ones off. You know, does it spark joy? Does this song on my list right now actually spark joy? A whole bunch of it is. Duran Duran, no joke, is one of the things I would credit with saving my life from a horrible childhood. Uh, Duran Duran, before I would ever enter the realm of explicit philosophy, gave you this sense of life, the escapism, the romanticism. And as I said, you know, some some of the lyrics have a really nice outlook to them. So every so often, I'm going to torture you guys with it, okay? Uh, take care, everybody. I will talk to you in a week. In the meantime, go over to the blog, don'tletitgo.com. Check me out on the various social media, whichever one you like, including my fun little Instagram. And I'll see you next week. It's always Wednesdays, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific. Take care, and thanks for everyone who's joined me over here at Blog Talk Radio. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.